Arsenal for Democracy is available twice a week. There's a free episode at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple or Stitcher each weekend and a midweek bonus episode at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy, available for $5 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. Redwood Forest, Gulf Stream Waters. This land was made for you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 361, recorded on Tuesday, March 23rd, 2021. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line, as always, from Idaho is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. This week on the bonus episode, we're talking about another unsuccessful early 20th century U.S. labor action, including a failed general strike call. It's the 1923 San Pedro Maritime Strike at the Port of Los Angeles in California. Now, you may recall that we talked several weeks ago in January of 2021 on episode 344 about the 1934 West Coast Waterfront Strike just over a decade later, and that was a huge strike along the entire coast of the U.S. West Coast of California and was very successful and uh, led to the future dominance of the Longshoremen's Union that we also talked about on various other episodes. However, This is sort of a precursor to that, and it's important to understand that. So let's go back to 1923. The IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, led this strike or walkout, which occurred not long after the first Red Scare and the anti-syndicalist, anti-socialist legislation we discussed on our summer 2019 IWW mega episode, one of which was the California criminal syndicalism law. Typically, according to the 1935 analysis, criminal syndicalism legislation in the United States by Eldridge Dowell, these laws, which had been passed in 15 states and two territories, often unchanged in each, ranged from restrictions on the use of public grounds for assembly to restrictions on ballot eligibility to bans on red flags to literature distribution bans to various laws against industrial sabotage intended to achieve industrial political objectives. Penalties nearly always included hefty fines and a decade of prison time. And I think it's worth noting here that at the time we're talking about in 1923, there were still a bunch of people in prison uh, or had been recently in prison in some cases if they were already let out, um, who had been imprisoned under the sedition laws that we talked about on our episode about the American Protective League during World War I. There was a lot of key socialist leaders and IWW leaders who had been imprisoned. So there was a big situation involving political prisoners at the time, and these state laws uh, kept that sort of momentum going after uh, the federal actions stopped at the end of World War I. Incredibly, the California law was not actually formally repealed until 1991, but the U.S. Supreme Court had explicitly nullified it inside a 1969 ruling on a case in Ohio. That was Brandenburg v. Ohio. Uh, For reasons that will become ironic as we progress through this episode today, it should be noted that the Ohio ruling was actually upholding the right of a Klansman to engage in inflammatory hate speech and public demonstrations for which he was being prosecuted by Ohio under the criminal syndicalism law on the books in that state. 
So let's get back to the 1923 strike in San Pedro now that we have the background on the criminal syndicalism law and the position of the IWW in the period after the first Red Scare had ended. The 1923 strike in San Pedro followed the brief failed May 1916 port strike, which the LAPD suppressed by literally hiring out its police to work protection details for the port ownership scab workers. There was also another brief attempted strike in late 1919 when the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce announced an agreement by all companies on the waterfront that they would be open shop, as in union membership would not be required anywhere. The IWW's national leadership decided to order all port worker members on the entire U.S. West Coast to relocate to Los Angeles to build up density to begin organizing serious opposition to the open shop policy and to try to strengthen their defenses against the criminal syndicalism law in California. The open shop policy basically pushed out the less radical labor organizations like the AFL, leaving the IWW to pick up support from any workers still interested in fighting back against management. They organized them into the Marine Transport Workers Industrial Union Local 510. In early 1923, they staged some little wildcat strikes on or around individual ships to keep them from operating on time. And they had been staging small street protests in the face of police crackdowns since back in November of the previous year. So on April 25th, 1923, the IWW launched an attempted port-wide strike or walkout of their members and supporters in response to a state grand jury hearing on alleged violations of the Criminal Syndicalism Act. Their demands, bolstered by IWW members in other trades, in other trades on the West Coast, as well as several thousand East Coast IWW port workers, was the immediate release of all political prisoners, state and federal, held under criminal syndicalism and sedition laws. Although only several thousand, or perhaps perhaps low tens of thousands of workers in the entire country walked out to join the, the strike. A contemporary New York Times article, who can we can always trust to be anti-labor, uh, reported that 15,000 lumbermen in the Pacific Northwest, half affiliated to or half merely supporting the IWW, had walked out on April 25th as well. Other West Coast ports continued to operate without serious interruption, perhaps because the IWW had recalled their members to L.A., and the Sailors Union of the Pacific refused to participate because they already had an ongoing labor action in progress, centered on a work slowdown, and they didn't want to throw out their strategy, which they felt was getting them results. Around 90 ships in Los Angeles were initially tied up by the strike action, by possibly as many as 3,000 strikers, but the ships got underway gradually as the LAPD began arresting IWW organizers and members. Not much more materialized on May Day when the IWW called for a general strike of all workers in Los Angeles. The employers kept maneuvering whenever possible to try to cut side deals with various labor clusters in Los Angeles who were sympathetic to the IWW strike and were threatening to join them, which kept sympathy walkouts relatively minimal in size. By mid-May, the LAPD had arrested and was still holding around 600 strikers. On May 15th, Upton Sinclair who had already run for Congress twice as a socialist and was eventually going to run for governor three times, was arrested for reading the First Amendment while leading a protest on Liberty Hill in Los Angeles. Allegedly, the arresting officer said, we'll have none of that Constitution stuff. The LAPD continued mass arrests for a few more days until it became untenable. The arrest of Sinclair, nationally famous for his pivotal work on labor safety and food production in the 1906 novel The Jungle, 
was so shocking to the public that the LAPD was forced to release and withdraw charges against nearly all of the 600 IWW members or supporters they had arrested up to that point. There was no police action against Sinclair a week later when he returned to Liberty Hill to address a crowd of 5,000. And all of our sources will be up with the notes at patreon.com slash arsenal for democracy when this bonus episode goes live. That particular one uh, came from an article on a local website uh, from the United Food and Commercial Workers. Um, One of Sinclair's conditions to drop a civil lawsuit against the city for violating his rights was the resignation of the LAPD chief, which did happen, particularly because the chief had been quoted multiple times mentioning Sinclair by name in a way that made pretty clear Sinclair was being specifically targeted unfairly above and beyond anyone else. The experience spurred Sinclair to launch the ACLU of Southern California and eventually to begin his three attempts to win the governorship, including the 1934 race as the Democratic nominee, where he was defeated but won nearly 38%. Uh, And there are some photos of uh, one of his rallies at Liberty Hill uh, on an old IWW website, which we've linked to as well. Uh, Since 1998, there has been a nine-foot-tall stone monolith with commemorative bronze plaques on the site, to mark the events. Uh, Also, as a sort of side tangent, um, in 1928, Sinclair wrote a Broadway play called The Singing Jailbirds, inspired in part by the mass jailing, including him, of the 1923 strikers and their supporters. Now, a little bit bizarre here, but this play, this play from 1928, The Singing Jailbirds, was inexplicably revived as a musical in San Pedro in 2009 by a guy who thought that the original play had too much socialist propaganda in it. That's a direct quote, socialist propaganda. Uh, Again, we're talking about one of the more famous members of the Socialist Party of America who wrote the original. And part of his revival and rehab of this play included literally writing new lyrics to use over traditional labor songs, again, because the traditional labor songs were also too socialist. And that's something that he chose to add in in the first place, and also interspersing that with 1920s jazz music. And then to cap it off, the production drafted men from a nearby residential addiction recovery program to play the Longshoreman Singers. Just a very bizarre story all around that I read in an article in the Pasadena Star News from 2009. And a quick observation from friend of the show and past guest John Levitt, this would be like adapting the Sinclair novel Oil to be about a curmudgeonly oil man who adopts a child and learns to love instead of adapting it as there will be blood. Now, Rachel, now that we've taken that side tangent and we've gotten most of the strikers released in 1923, uh, let's go back to what was happening with the strike at that point in mid to late May. So even though the strikers were released, the mass arrests had already done their part for port management at the time. A nearly equal number of scab replacement workers had been given permanent employment to replace the arrested strikers during that time. And by May 18th, a few days after the Sinclair arrest, The Shipowners Association announced that they had just experienced the busiest day in San Pedro history, with 85 ships loading or unloading under 2,800 workers. Functionally, there was no more strike. Protest actions and mass meetings continued for a few more days beyond that, but by May 24th, non-IWW workers who could still secure re-employment voted to end the walkout. Uh, So police had combined with the KKK to suppress the 1923 strike. The LA Klan recruited more members during this time, to go stand around on the docks, sometimes not even wearing hoods, to menace potential strikers. Uh, So Bill also found another recent source 
that is not exactly trustworthy. That said, American Legion members participated in strike-breaking activities as well, which is definitely plausible, but there were no citations to support this claim, so it, it won't be linked in the show notes. Um, so the Klan kind of continued their harassment. In March of 1924, a little less than a year later, the Klan gathered members from every direction over hundreds of miles to Los Angeles and marched to the San Pedro waterfront, Liberty Hill, and around an IWW meeting hall with hoods and burning crosses and a police escort as a warning to IWW members and sympathizers not to try striking again. So this is um, also from the IWW website. The IWW's official magazine at the time, The Industrial Pioneer, observed that most of the local newspapers vastly inflated the number of Klan marchers into the 10,000 to 15,000 range, while one local newspaper more calmly estimated well under 2,000 Klan members participated, which the IWW correspondent believed was a more accurate assessment, um, especially after judging the length of the parade wrapped around the IWW meeting hall. So to, to kind of go... Um, on a tangent about the Los Angeles Times, uh, the, strike the strike occurred about 13 years after the deadly Los Angeles Times bombing, after which the IWW was violently persecuted, even though they were unconnected to it. So the LA Times continued its militantly anti-labor coverage during this period, although publisher Harrison Gray Otis, who also headed the Merchants and Manufacturers Associ Association, had finally died in 1917. So back to this Klan uh, parade. The Klan parade was headed up by a local banker as well as a supervisor of the poor owner's approved hiring hall, also known as the Fink Hall, which had been the object of much of the strikers' ire the previous year. A Klansman delivered a speech making clear their affiliation to capital as well as their bigotry, and I quote, If there are any IWW in the crowd, I say to you, we are not against you, but we are against Bolshevism, anarchy, IWWism, or any other doctrine of disloyalty to the Constitution. If you are aliens, willing to become good Americans, you will not be molested. If you don't like the country, you can go back to where you came from. And if you have no country to go to, you can go to hell. The IWW correspondent observed that this was followed by a claim that the Klan was not bigoted nor intolerant, but they would brook no interruption of commerce. And in another 1924 Klan incident, the KKK and Navy sailors attacked the IWW hall directly beating a woman to death, and severely scalding her young daughter with boiling coffee. They also tarred and feathered IWW members. And um, photos of the tarred and feathered members and the girl who was uh, recovering from her burns are linked, uh, are found on a Washington.edu um, article about the Liberty Hill strike. Yeah, so a pretty grim strike in 1923 and a grim aftermath into 1924 as well. Um, you know, we wanted to emphasize this for a number of reasons, not only because it's a bit of a precursor to that 1934 strike that was much more successful, but also because this strike was fairly important. The failure of the 1923 strike in Los Angeles may have contributed to the fracturing and long-term decline of the IWW, which was already on the ropes since World War One, as we've discussed in uh, many previous episodes. So this is an important contextual piece of information to understand in their history, and it's not something we'd really talked about in our mega episodes in 2019 on the IWW, because we were mostly focused on the uh, situation before World War One, during World War One, and then the criminal syndicalism legislation after, uh, during the first Red Scare, but not as much about what happened after that. And then, of course, as we've talked about on other episodes, subsequently, 
the sort of rise in popularity of the communists, along with support from the Soviet Union for communist parties in the United States, um, kind of shifted the balance within the left uh, in the United States. But this one's an important one to understand, and a pretty grim example, again, of kind of trying to launch a strike, especially a general strike, without really actually doing the work to kind of line up people. But as you can see, they were also up against very formidable odds here. Um, not only that really hostile and violent press coverage from almost all the local newspapers, but also the power and connections of the KKK at the time. Um, it's something we haven't talked a huge amount about as like a direct episode, but you've probably noticed that in a lot of these episodes, especially the ones set in the 1920s, there is this sort of undercurrent about the revived clan during this period. Um, the first clan was during the Reconstruction period right after the Civil War. The second clan arises around the time of things like Birth of a Nation, the Woodrow Wilson administration, etc., and kind of reaches its zenith around 1924 or so. And you can see how sort of brazen they were being, even in a place like Los Angeles, well outside of their sort of core territorial area in the Deep South. Um, the fact that they were willing to, you know, be openly identified as clan people working alongside the police uh, to menace strikers, I think, shows you sort of the state of the situation at the time. Uh, Rachel, I wanted to get your sort of thoughts and reactions to this strike and the uh, incidents at Liberty Hill. Yeah, like you said, this really perfectly encapsulates kind of the recurring themes that we've talked about, um, talking about other strike actions. Just the fact that the cops and the Klan work together um, in concert to terrorize the strikers. Um, I think, yeah, this is one of the most brazen and and uh, blatant uh, actions by the Klan that we've seen. Um, but, and also like the fact that, that the media was just so virulent against the strikers, it's pretty obvious that there was a lot going against the strikers at this time. And they just hadn't really built up the, the base of support that they needed that later showed up in the, in the 1934 strike. Um, so it, it was doomed to fail pretty much, but I think I think it did lay a lot of the groundwork for that 1934 strike. Something that was striking to me just looking at the photos is we don't really know what a tarring and feathering entailed. I think it's kind of become almost a, like a meme, uh, um, like in cartoons and such. But I think it was it was really painful and it was really violent. And I think that's something that that people today because we're so far removed from it, don't really realize the extent and, and how bad it was. I was actually thinking the same thing, Rachel, when I was looking at the photos, basically that um, it's abstracted in a way. Like I've seen photos of this before and I was certainly familiar with what the concept was, but it is remarkable how much people are willing to throw that term around. There's a whole bunch of terms that have to do with horrible segregationist things and other violent racial crimes basically in the United States that people are starting to re-examine and think about you know their usage of and as this indicates it wasn't exclusively a racialized thing but in many cases of course people know that usually the tarring and feathering if it wasn't directly targeting a black person or some other person of color it was often targeting a white person who was suspected of helping them or being in league with them. And of course, the IWW, as we've talked about before, 
did try to push pretty hard for, you know, the idea of racial integration in their unions and building cl- uh, class-wide cross-racial solidarity. And this was a major threat, right? This is another reason why the Klan was agitated about this in addition to their own sort of class alignments with the uh, petty bourgeoisie in coalition with the major capitalists in places like Los Angeles and other places all over the country. And um, this does go to show you, as Rachel said, that this was a very serious thing. And it is um, a little bit wild the way people will throw that around on the internet. You know, oh, I said such and such and people got mad and they were ready to tar and feather me. It's like, all right, well, that was a pretty serious thing. And you know, it was being coupled with these other things we mentioned, like beating a woman to death, severely scalding a young girl who might have even been under the age of 10. Um, These are pretty heinous acts, and they were quite willing to do that. The other thing I found interesting in the article from the Industrial Pioneer at the time was the IWW magazine correspondent commenting that the Klan members seemed so fearful that these boogeymen they'd heard so much about, these wobblies, were going to, you know, pull out submachine guns and mow them all down in the streets. And they didn't get bold until they had fully surrounded the building, had police protection all over the place, and that nobody had tried to shoot them. Up until that point, apparently, according to the IWW correspondent anyway, they were not particularly bold, and they were all looking around like really, you know, skittish, because they thought that they, you know, these big bad longshoremen or whatever were going to come pouring out or lean out the window and start opening fire on them and stuff like that. And they really didn't get brave until nobody did anything, you know, against them. Um, and he felt, the writer felt that tactically that was the correct approach, that the IWW took the correct approach of continuing their meeting inside the meeting hall, not reacting to what was going on outside. Um, because that, of course, is a you know a significant point of debate is how do you tactically respond to these things. And in this particular case, that was seen as the appropriate response. Um, and it probably was. I mean, look, you know, the, the strike the year before had not gone very well. They didn't have that many uh, members and supporters necessarily uh, who could back them up. And they certainly weren't going to get any protection from the police if things went sideways. So, you know, they, they had to make a choice. And the choice they made there was to basically pretend it wasn't happening and just carry on with things. And the next day... They had uh, a whole bunch of supporters showed up to the IWW hall um, to, you know, help pitch in and stuff like that um, because they felt that the, you know, IWW had faced this down and, you know, deserved their support and so forth. Any other closing thoughts, Rachel? Yeah, like you said, like any any action on the IWW's part would have just been an escalation and probably would have led to, to great amounts of violence. So I think... Uh, the IWW did do the right thing. And um, the article said that uh, like their voices could be heard singing union men be strong. So um, I think that's a good like rebellious counterpoint while not being violent or escalating the violence. Right. I guess there was some concern that people were going to like try to argue with the Klan speech guys, you know, disputing their points. And that didn't really happen. And it would have been completely pointless. Um, And, you know, it wasn't like they were non-responsive because, as you said, they were singing the union songs audibly uh, from inside the hall as part of their meeting. And so people could know, like, well, they're not afraid either. So Mm -hmm. anyway. All right. Well, uh, 
Rachel, uh, as you mentioned on our most recent uh, episode that you did by yourself uh, on the main feed, we will be off next week. That includes both the main feed and the bonus feed. Um, I'm going to be taking a uh, once per quarter break, I guess we'll call it, uh, because it's my birthday weekend. Um, So I will uh, check back with you and the other folks like Kelly uh, and Nate and so forth um, in in a few weeks. We've got some really exciting episodes coming up uh, in the queue We just wanted to have a chance to have a break and uh, give people some time to catch up as well because we've been putting out a lot of episodes lately. So, Rachel, thank you so much for being on this week to talk about the 1923 San Pedro Maritime Strike. Yeah, thanks for having me.